0: Hello and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, the director. This week, we're returning to the topic of China and how Beijing sees the world, a question that goes through an awful lot of our work. I spent part of today talking about China and India. Since the start of the invasion of Ukraine, Western capitals, especially Washington and London, have been watching ties between Russia and China very closely, attempting to decipher any signs of disagreement or even disapproval between Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping. We'll discuss how China views the invasion of Ukraine, the ties between China and Russia more broadly, and above all, how both countries view the EU, NATO, the US, and the transatlantic alliance. I've got a great panel here, many of them in the studio with me. Joining me again is Dr. Ujia, Senior Research Fellow with our Asia-Pacific Programme. Welcome. Thank you, Brahman. Great Great to have you back here. With us as well in the studio is Dr. Samuel Ramani, a tutor of international relations at the University of Oxford and author of the book Putin's War on Ukraine. Welcome.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Great to have you. And finally, down the line is Dr. Marcin Kaczmarski, a lecturer in security studies at the University of Glasgow. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Very, very good. Um, well, we have many things to talk about. But, Yujia, I wondered if I could start with you and the latest story about the sudden disappearance of China's foreign minister.
2: Well, obviously, this really catch the limelight. And also, this guessing game has been going around for the entire month since his disappearance. But what we have done so far is that, yes, even though his title as being foreign minister has been removed, but his title by being a state councilor remained within the state council, which is the chi- equivalent of the Chinese um, government's cabinet over there. So it's still very much in an undecided mode and what Xi Jinping wants to do with his most trusted confidant. And obviously, given the rise of Qinggao, the Chinese foreign minister, it takes many of us by surprise because he has not really had it as being ambassador for any other countries except a stint of 18 months with the United States. And so many within in diplomatic service, considered that he somehow lack of experience of being a foreign minister. So his dismissal has been really seen in Beijing as being a huge political drama for this summer.
0: Any firm reasons as to why it happened?
2: There's not any firm reasons officially, but really judging from the quick deletion of, of Gong's bio and also his activities in official channel, and obviously something quite serious happened to him politically. And then what is really interesting is the success of Gong, which is the old hand of Wang Yi, who returned the foreign ministry as being a foreign minister. I think that also tells that Xi Jinping hasn't really made up his mind and tried to looking for a new person to head the foreign ministry.
0: And yeah. new person or new policy as well. I remember when Wang Yi gave a big speech at the Munich Security Conference just at the beginning of this year and people said, OK, that's you know he's on his way out. That's one of the last big speeches he'll give. Don't put too much weight on it. Suddenly he's back. Well, I think let's put it this way.
2: Foreign minister in China is the chief imp- implementer on Xi Jinping's foreign policy. So I think it's the, really the big man, the big boss decide on the direction of travel for foreign affairs. So I think expecting much continuity and less so on um, suddenly turn the page.
0: Samuel, let's turn then to our question of Ukraine and China's attitudes to Ukraine, just with that uh, warm-up that Yujia gave us. Can you take us into what China's official stance is on the conflict in Ukraine and what you think it might do in the future?
1: So China's official stance is basically somewhat uh, neutral on the conflict. It hasn't criticized uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and it sympathized with some of the rationales uh, for Russia's decision to invade, like uh, the NATO expansion that was being out of control both in Eastern Europe and then also in the Asia-Pacific region, and also being critical to some extent of the uh, color revolutions that uh, propelled uh, Poroshenko to power in 2014, so the Euro-Maidan revolution by extension. But China also has not uh, praised uh, Russia's decision either. So it's been uh, not critical, but not really necessarily praiseworthy of it. And China has been an outspoken opponent of Western arms transfers to Ukraine, claiming that they're adding fuel to the fire and they're making a bad situation worse. It has officially advanced a 12-point peace plan for the conflict in Ukraine, which appears to want to freeze the conflict along uh, relatively current boundary lines. But it's zigzagged on that question, too, because when they engage with officials in Kiev, like Dmitry Kuleba, they insist that they're not necessarily wanting Russia to occupy territory, but their peace plan a uh, freezing the conflict will precisely lead to the Russians keeping Donbass and Crimea. And they've also tried to uh, take a strong stance against some of the uh, threatening rhetoric about Russia in the with regards to the use of nuclear weapons, the detonation of the Zaporizhia nuclear plant, and they've uh, supported the Black Sea Grain Deal's implementation, but have been strangely quiet since the suspension.
0: So kind of elements of what you might call a moderating influence there, um, but broadly an influence that is on the Russia side.
1: Exactly, yeah. They've been trying to moderate Russia's conduct uh, in certain respects. I definitely, uh, when I was speaking to experts in Moscow in September of 2022, which I think was the most dangerous moment for Russia's potential use of nuclear weapons, because uh, Russia had just suffered a disastrous defeat in Kharkiv, it had serious manpower shortages, and Vladimir Putin, correctly, was fearful of mobilization because he thought it would lead to uh, significant social unrest. At that moment in time, China and India definitely banded together to uh, down down and to reduce the risk of Russia doing something catastrophic, like using a tactical nuclear weapon. So China is playing, to some degree, a moderation role. But I think as time goes on, they're becoming more and more indirectly a party to the conflict. We just saw, for example, the shipment of hundreds of thousands of, uh, of armored uh, uh, coats and vests and other, uh, also a lot of dual-use goods, like semiconductors that are coming through from China. So their ability to moderate becomes less and less when they're becoming increasingly a party to the conflict.
0: Marcin, would you agree with that picture, uh, that China is getting dragged into this, despite the stance of wanting to sit there watching what, what is what is happening?
3: I would distinguish between what the Chinese allows its actors, its companies to do, and what the Chinese government is doing in strategic terms. Because my argument would be that in strategic terms, China still has not offered Russia... Substantial support in terms of either credit lines or big energy deals. At the same time, we see a data that shows growing trade between China and Russia. Chinese companies enter the Russian market. They seize the opportunity of having the vacuum created by by Western companies leaving. The the fact that Russia needs to find new suppliers. But I I would say that this is the Chinese government that does not. Stop uh, its its companies, either private or state-owned, from helping Russia. But at the same time, with all what, what what my colleagues already have already said, it still, in my opinion, has not made a clear stance that would mean that that would show that China is ready to help Russia bypass Western sanctions and that China is throwing its full weight uh, in favor of Russia.
0: So you put it very well. There's a lot of help there, though obviously stopping a long way short, it says of of the military help that the U.S. has made very clear it doesn't want to see China giving Russia. Ujia, is it possible to say what China wants to happen in this conflict?
2: Well, I think what China want happen in the very beginning are a very different from right now. So from the very beginning, what China wanted to do expect a very quick victory from Russia's side and hence Russia become much stronger and that it's easier for China to have that closer alignment with Russia combating the so-called U.S. US and Germany. But given as the war drags on... I think what China's trying to do right now is try to end this conflict as quick as possible, probably for China's own interest in terms of um, energy deals and also in terms of the grain deals and also in terms of the pressure, the mounting pressure that China had um, in this relationship with United States in terms of driving a wedge between United States and Europe on its views towards China. So I think China's interest throughout this invasion has really changed to some extent. And also let's bear in mind that China used to have a relatively good relationship with Ukraine in the past 10 years the two countries has actually declared strategic partnership back to 2001 and then um Ukraine was among the top 10 foreign direct uh, assistance recipients um, from the Chinese end. So um, and also China purchases the first ever n- um, aircraft carrier from Ukraine, not from Russia. So China doesn't really want to entirely hoping that Ukraine would pivot towards the West. And somehow China still want to play a role in the so-called post-construction, post-war construction process.
0: Samuel, how much influence do you think China has? We're obviously looking at the moment at the Ukraine counter-offensive and those who want... Ukraine to win in almost any sense don't want to put talk about any kind of settlement um, at the moment and uh, want to keep encouraging people to give support to Ukraine um, the counteroffensive moves on Ukraine is making some slow progress do you think that there's going to come a point where China might weigh in on the Russian side and just say look we need to talk about a settlement now well, how, how do you think China China's role may play out in as this moves at some point towards a resolution mm-hmm.
1: I think yeah I agree with exactly with what uh, the others have said is that China is definitely not going to uh give Russia a complete blank check to basically continue this war indefinitely. I mean, as we saw during the first six months of the war, for example, Belt and Road investment, which already was diminishing there, basically ground to a complete halt. We saw some modest recovery of certain areas of economic support for Russia, particularly with regards to automobile parts in the second half of the year, and also through some expansions of some energy deals at a discount, but not very much. So China's not going to let Russia carry on with this war forever or also escalate the war in ways that would be non-conventional. So I think that If there was ever that risk of something happening, I think that China would try to put the brakes onto it. China does not necessarily want to see uh, Ukraine uh, completely destroyed for for reasons that we just discussed. But if Ukraine is uh, suffering from severe economic damage, it wants to show that it played a role in de-escalating and balancing uh, the conflict. It's important to keep in mind, for example, in 2015, China increased agricultural and particularly corn exports from Ukraine, right as the Russians were uh, intensifying their campaign in Donbass. So this is their old Old strategy. So if the war seems to be going on for a long time, there's a risk of a non-conventional Russian response or the risk of uh, Ukraine uh, suffering uh, even more uh, devastation to its economic infrastructure. I can see China trying to engage in track to diplomacy to put the brakes on. But will the Russians or will the Ukrainians really listen to them? The Ukrainians want to recapture all their territory. The Russians don't want to... uh, Uh, settle right now, and Putin's under a lot of pressure from ultranationalists at home. So I don't know whether China can really uh, play that role in stopping it. They may have more cards to play than somebody like Turkey, but they may not be able to also end the war in a swift fashion either.
0: That's exactly the point I wanted to take us to. Marcin, what do you make of this? Does China have the influence if it wanted to help stop this conflict at some point? Does it have the influence specifically with Russia?
3: I believe that China might have this kind of influence, but the question is how costly it would be to China, because it would mean that China undermines and risks uh, undermining the trust it has managed to build in relations with Russia. And by trust, I mean a kind of trust where Russian leaders can be certain that China won't join the West in criticizing Russia. Um, Chinese leaders, in my view, are also quite wary of letting the outside world to... recognize any signals of weakening of Sino-Russian ties. Uh, They try to keep the impression of an excellent strategic partnership and an excellent relationship. And moving, putting extra pressure on Russia uh, is problematic for China because it doesn't change the general equation with the US. So China cannot count on the US changing its policy drastically because China exercises certain leverage over Moscow. And at the same time, it risks undermining this relationship with with Moscow. So I I would say that it is possible, but I don't see why China would like to to do it at at this cost, at, at the cost for Beijing.
2: Yeah, obviously, there are three things in here which we haven't mentioned. And first is the border issue between Beijing and Moscow, which take over 2,000 meetings in the past, the past 10 years or so, ready to settle that perhaps the longest border between two countries in the world is around 4,300 kilometers, is equivalent west of Europe. So if China can't handle Russia well, and then that border issue popping up it will become a major national security threat to Beijing. Now, secondly, I think this largely to domestic public opinion, that the Chinese leaders cannot be seen or perceived as being walking around NATO or the West talking points by supporting Ukraine but not supporting Russia. And that really emotionally, I think the Chinese public will not accept this. Not very finally, I think by having Putin in Kremlin, that would do China a much bigger favor than by having a more pro-Western leaders within Moscow. So I think for all the three reasons, it's unlikely Beijing would play a more proactive role, try to
0: somehow stop Russia. Really interesting point. Marcin, can you take us back also to China's own self-interest in this? And I'm thinking particularly of of, of energy and other resources, Um, how that plays into China's behavior on this conflict?
3: It's it's a very interesting situation in, in the energy realm, because firstly, we've seen the increase of purchase of, of Russian oil and Russian LNG by Chinese companies, both state-owned and private. But at the same time, China is still hesitant on what to do with the Russian-proposed gas pipeline power of Siberia too, which would go via, via Mongolia. And it would be a very clear signal to Russia and to the world that China is committed to the partnership that China is willing to invest long term because even if they decide to sign a contract, the pipeline is not going to be to be built in a year or two. We can see it either as this kind of a cautious game towards the West, or it is China just pushing Russia to um, receive more concessions to perhaps uh, receive some more concrete stakes in the Russian energy market. So in this sense, I would I would say that China is very opportunistically using this war to increase its position in the Russian energy market. But at the same time, it is still not willing to, to agree to what Russia proposes and to give this lifeline, especially to the to
1: Gazprom.
0: Samuel, how has this been portrayed in the Chinese media?
1: So the Chinese media basically has uh, reinforced the narratives that, you know, NATO was largely an instigator and a provocateur that kind of brought uh, this war to to bear. And that was very, very 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 similar to what we hear from Russia. Exactly. Very similar to what the Russians were saying. Very similar to what the Iranians are saying. And also very similar to what you're probably seeing from people like the Chinese foreign ministry spokesman Li Jinjiao on 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 Twitter and other social media channels. So that's one narrative that we're basically seeing. And we're seeing a lot of aversions to Western arms transfers and also specifically this notion that the United States is prolonging this war simply to profiteer and to enrich its uh, defense companies. You're also seeing in the Chinese media space a repetition of the uh, Russian narrative that uh, the U.S. is trying to make Europe much more dependent on it economically and security-wise, so some kind of subordination of Europe. Very similar, very complementary narratives one area where it was quite interesting to see the Chinese media coverage was uh, with regards to the recent mutiny uh, from Prigozhin against uh, Vladimir Putin. And what we saw there was that the Ch- China did not make an official statement until Sunday, and its Chinese state media outlets were gagged. But on Sohu and on another chest, said... Uh, usually tightly regulated social media platforms, we saw some criticisms of Putin's leadership, Putin's conduct of the war, and uh, comparisons to historical events like the An Lushan Rebellion and how Putin had mismanaged his private army. So there are some, at the lower levels and on the social media space, uh, limited areas of and pockets of criticism of Russian conduct, but the state media outlets generally just regurgitate Russian narratives.
0: Let's use that as a reason to talk... Um, about our second topic, which is uh, our second flank of this topic, which is how China looks at the West. And Yuji, I wonder if you can pick up from Samuel's last thoughts there about whether we're seeing a significant change in the way that China now views the West. Well,
2: what we have seen changes really happen a couple of years ago, back to um, the time when Trump started the trade war with China. And what we have seen is increasingly hawkish rhetoric come from the Chinese media by accusing that United States, firmly convicted that United States is sick to suppress China. Now, everything got really confirmed really by the 14th of March this year during Xi Jinping's speech in the National People's Congress by saying that the United States-led West is really seeking to contend and suppress China, and hence China is obliged to, to respond. So I think really Xi Jinping has set this tone. Their relationship with the West. And that fraction between China and the West is really here to stay. And that also has been really exaggerated in the time six months ago while we're talking about the Chinese uh, Communist Party um, Party Congress um, in October, that the term, the so-called constructing great power relationship between China and other great powers, usually a reference of the West, has not been completely removed and instead would have seen so far as amplification uh, regarding China's relationship with developing economies and the global south. So I think Beijing itself has also
0: changed tone and changed views towards the west, really from the start, from the top really interesting and we're using here this term scattering it around the Mm. west and we don't use it that much at chatham house because it is um becoming outdated and is so open to caricature caricature. is it one that china uses how does how does it refer to the block of countries including the u.s but including some very close to home in china that share the same values or democracies the rest of it
2: well i think the pretty much use the term uh, the US-led West and that which also including Japan and South Korea in a sense. Uh, but also there's another uh, source of voices within China, I think mostly among more liberal minded and intellectuals and felt that perhaps we should treat United States and Europe very differently because ultimately for United States it's an existential challenge for China, whereas for Europe it's that combination between partner and the rivalry and hence the Chinese should still seeking some room to maneuver and room to negotiate with Europeans? So I think even within the Chinese administration, the view are not really set in stone for the
0: moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really interesting, and mm-hmm. that reminds me of mm-hmm. the phrase now very popular in the UK's foreign office of of saying the US cares about what China is, we care about what China does. Um, all these views evolving. Marcin, what do you think that Russia makes of this change in China's um, views of the West. Does it see China as useful to it, a way of rolling back Western dominance?
3: For sure. From the Russian perspective, China is this in, indispensable player, which which can help um, Russia achieve its its uh, long-term goal of multipolarity or, or the rolling back of, of the Western dominance, whichever way we, we put it. And without... Without China, Russia wouldn't have any major ally slash partner um, or se- semi ally who might who, who would have the potential and political will to uh, to cooperate with Russia on on a number of issues. At the same time, it seems even with with this shift that that you just, um, discussed, um, I think that China still is more pragmatic, more flexible in terms of its attitude towards the West. And it's much more skillful in trying to drive the wedge between the US and, and the, the European Union in particular. With with, uh, I, I would ascribe a lot of what we discussed previously of China's this so-called neutral stance to, to this attempt to uh, drive the wedge between the US and, and Europe and keep Europeans at least, at least partly on on China's side, whereas uh, Russia seems to, especially with the war, seems to have lost this ability to uh, to engage in a, in a more elaborate diplomatic manoeuvres.
0: Samuel, what do you make of the rise of what's been called middle powers or non-aligned powers, which people have been talking about increasingly, but particularly since the Ukraine invasion. Um, Is it as as calm a picture as that phrase implies? uh, Or is there really a lot of movement in these allegiances?
1: Well, I think that there's certainly been uh, room and scope for a middle power diplomacy that's kind of kicked through started since the Ukraine War began. I think we've obviously been seeing a good example being Indonesia trying to project itself uh, with a diplomatic settlement that led to a demilitarized zone, very similar to the Chinese proposal that was that's shot down. That's a very good example. Yep, that's one example. And also, yeah, in general, Indonesia, China shuttling between Zelensky and Putin in the lead-up to the G20 summit and trying to take a bit of a lead on the issue of food insecurity. And uh, we're also seeing, for example, obviously the activities of Turkey, where we've done everything from the Black Sea Grain Deal to Zaporizhia Nuclear Plant to uh, the general final settlement issues, trying to project itself as some kind of a NATO member, but also having strategic autonomy, being something of an arbiter. And Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Qatar have kind of tried to, in a more subtle and a more quieter way, to emulate those kind of roles, so there's been a movement towards uh, more assertive middle power diplomacy. We're seeing South Africa now being another great example. With the, they're going to be making themselves center stage at the Russia Africa summit this week in Saint Petersburg. But I don't know how much results that we've really been seeing coming from that, given the fact that so many of these proposals just seem to get shot down or or are a bit detached from reality on the ground. And it seems to be more of a status-boosting exercise, in my view, or a way of showing independence from the West and uh, embracing a situational foreign policy, rather than middle powers actually presenting a very constructive role in uh, improving the situation. Maybe Turkey's efforts might be an exception in some cases, but most of the others, it's been uh, a lot more show and a lot less uh, action.
0: And I think I'm right that Russia hasn't demonstrated quite the pulling power it had back in 2021 in, 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 in convening all these African countries. Some have stayed away, haven't they?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that it's going to be very interesting to see what the attendance level is going to be over the next two days. I mean, there were 43 that came in 2019. And uh, the Russian foreign ministry, even by its own estimations earlier this week, said that about half the countries of the continent decided to send heads of state. So that's a substantial reduction.
0: It's, it's not just which yeah. ones come, but at what level?
1: And so what level? Exactly. Whether they will be heads of state, like even like, for example, Sudan's military chief, Borhan is not coming and sending his deputy. I mean, and the uh, head of Kenya, who they put a lot of hope in Rudo coming, they even had a free trade pact with them. He's not most likely not coming. So there's going to be some disappointments and there's going to be recriminations internally as to whether that is, uh, as Nikolai Patrushev says, the fact that Western new colonials are trying to deter uh, African countries from participating in, in a summit with Russia at any cost. Or some Russian journalist like Yuri Segov, a veteran military correspondent, has blamed it explicitly on Russia's failure in the Ukraine war, and that's why they're not coming. Both
0: really interesting twists on that. I, I will remember both of those points in looking at who actually does rock up to it. You can follow what exactly happens in our work and on our website. With that, we could go on for a long time on this, but we don't have the time, nor do you, our listeners. So we'll have to wrap that up now. And actually bring to an end this particular series of independent thinking. We're taking a very short break over the summer, provided things are more or less quiet. If not, we'll be back. But don't worry, we'll be back in full force with Series 2 on the 1st of September to discuss Ukraine's counter-offensive and where the summer has left that. One of the questions that many foreign ministries are going to be looking at as we get into the autumn. So very big thank you to my final guests of the series, Eugia, Marcin, Hmschaski and Samuel Ramani to follow them all on the social media platform previously known as Twitter the links for all that are going to be in the show notes a reminder that you can find all of our podcasts on Apple Spotify all major platforms as well as through our social media so do follow and subscribe please do leave us a review if it's part of your summer listening and to read more from our experts or to find out more about our many events Or to become a member, or give it as a present. In either case, we'd love to have you or your friends or family. Don't forget to visit chathamhouse.org, where you can find the work of all of our programmes. So that's just for a brief break. Goodbye from me, Bronwyn Maddox. Have a great summer. Thank you for listening.